There we go. Everybody happy today? How many of you love the Word of God? Amen. Let's turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Appreciate it, guys. That was a beautiful song. 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I'm going to begin a new series today that I'm going to call God Never Wastes a Pain. God Never Wastes a Pain. How many of you know that's true? Well, not many of you. Well, praise God that I'm hearing God on what to preach on. Say, I don't know if I'm going to like this series, Pastor. Oh, you're going to like this series. How many of you have had a little bit of pain since you were saved? How many of you had some pain this week? How many of you are pain-free always? Some of you got a case of the no-nods today. You know what that is? You can't do this, you can't do this. Now let me just try this again. How many of you had some pain since you were saved? All right, God never wastes a pain. And we're jumping into the book of Samuel, chapter one, chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim. Just saying that gives me pain. <laughs> of the mountains of Ephraim, his name was Elkanah, the son of Jer- Jeroham, or Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and a bunch of other sons. Verse 2, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Say with me, the male ego is always the same. The answer, no. (laughs) So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost uh, by the tabernacle of the Lord. And she, that is Hannah, was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli, sitting by the tabernacle, was watching her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. 
But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Two more verses. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, which means heard by God, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Father, thank you for your word today. And thank you, Lord, that you're able to make all things work together for our good. And you never even waste a pain. Blessed in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Turn to your neighbor and tell him God's going to bless you with this today. Amen. Well, I'm going to call this today Hannah Rose. Hannah Rose. Now, in the next few weeks... I'm going to be ministering on the subject, God Never Wastes a Pain. Today's message is called Hannah Rose, How Hannah Got the Victory in Unbearable Circumstances. How Hannah Got Victory in Unbearable Circumstances. Then next week, I'm going to speak on Joseph's injustice. How Joseph overcame bitter betrayal. Then the third week, I'm going to be speaking on David's Dilemma. How David persevered in the midst of relentless persecution and prevailed. And then the fourth week, I'm going to talk about Peter's denial. How Peter overcame crushing failure. Now the Bible promises, and this is sort of the keynote verse for the whole series, the Bible promises in Romans 8, 28, this is the Amplified Bible, all things, can you say with me all things? Now I want you to say it really like you mean it. As a matter of fact, preach it to me because you're going to remember those two words as we go through this series. Let's say it together. Ready? All things, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you love God, you have been touched by God because the Bible says we love him only because he took the initiative and first loved us. We wouldn't love God if he hadn't first loved us. So he courted us, he approached us, he pursued us, now we love God. And if we love God, we're called according to his plan. I want you to say with me today, I'm called. I'm called of God. All things, all things, covers a lot of things. Good and bad, easy and hard understandable things and things not understandable, exciting things, dull things, successes and failures, all things, also includes pain-free times and painful times. The promise to every believer is that our God is never checkmated by circumstances. He's never checkmated by the devil. He's never checkmated by us. He always, 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 I'm going to say it again, always makes us triumph in Jesus Christ 
We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us because anything Satan throws at us, any mistake we make, anything that comes against us, God turns it according to His sovereign power for our good. It's going to work for your good. No matter what it looks like, it's going to work for your good. God's going to turn it for your good, no matter what it is, even when it's pain. It's easy to imagine God using the things that we enjoy. It's easy to imagine God using the things that bring happiness and fulfillment to work His will out in our lives. But it's harder to see how in the world God is going to use those things that are difficult and that bring pain to us. But the truth is, God never even wastes a pain. God never wastes a pain. I'm going to ask... Chuck, would you move this stuff here? And Tim, would you move this stuff here? Or I'm going to spend five minutes doing just the microphone back and the stand back because I want to see these people. Hello. I don't want to look at you over a music stand. There we go. Thank you, guys. Everybody say praise God. I like looking people in the eye when I preach. Now, everybody say God is in charge. Now, the book of Samuel opens up with a man, Alcana, and we find Alcana in a polygamous marriage. His first wife's name is Hannah, and Hannah is barren. The second wife's name is Peninnah, who we are told has borne multiple sons and daughters to Elkanah. In Old Testament times, it was crucial for a man to raise up a son after him that that son might carry on his name. To be barren Though it was wrong, not accurate, not true, to be barren was viewed as the curse of God on a woman. Hannah's barrenness is almost certainly what brought Peninnah into the picture as wife number two. And Peninnah began to bear children to Elkanah, many sons and daughters. Now the name Peninnah sounds a lot like what she was like toward Hannah, like a pin. She pricked her incessantly with cruel verbal stabs over the fact that she was barren. You're barren. You can't have children. I can have children. Sort of a na-na-na-na-na-na. Scripture calls Peninnah Hannah's rival, which is translated from a Hebrew word meaning adversary. So you've got two women living in the same house with one man. They're Emotions are torn, their affections are torn, jealousy and envy run rampant, and there's these constant mind games going on between Peninnah and Hannah, and it made Hannah miserable. The Bible says her rival, her adversary, in her own house, provoked her severely to make her miserable. And the Bible says that this had gone on for years. So it was year by year, the Bible says, when Hannah went up to Shiloh with her family to worship the Lord, that Peninnah, particularly then, when Hannah was to get close to God, when Hannah wanted to touch God, spend time with God, when they went up to sacrifice to the Lord, that's when Peninnah kicked into high gear when it came to persecuting, harassing, and vexing Hannah. Can you imagine every time you came to church, somebody came along with you who harassed you and heckled you and gave you a hard time? Don't look at your spouse. Look at me. Every year they would go up to Shiloh to the house of the Lord 
And they would worship and have a family feast. And particularly, here would come Peninnah with all of her children in tow. And Hannah had none. And Hannah was feeling the barrenness, feeling that she had no child. And instead of empathizing with her, sympathizing with her, offering a helping hand and a, a female ear to pour your heart out to, instead of that, Peninnah pricked her constantly with jabs and stabs verbally, persecuting her, telling her God wasn't with her, telling her God was cursing her, telling her that she was a failure, telling her that she was no good, telling her that she had not given her husband what he most wanted. If you can imagine that day in and day out and day in and day out, and you can't tell me that the kids didn't pick up mom's attitude as those children began to grow, they too had an attitude towards Hannah because this went on year after year after year. Those kids grew up some, and as they were growing up, those kids took on mama's attitude, and they also persecuted Hannah, made fun of Hannah, looked disparagingly at Hannah. It's been wisely said that you shouldn't really judge a person until you've walked a mile in their moccasins. Now, we can't walk a mile in Hannah's moccasins, but we can try to imagine how the misery index must have risen in her life year after year as Peninnah's needle-like jabs and stabs must have made her dread yet another day of entrapment in a household where no relief was in sight. Where'd you go in those days? There wasn't another city to move to. You didn't walk away like that when you were a woman in those days. You were trapped. Couple that with the reproach of long-term barrenness, unable to give your husband the one thing he really wanted, along with the daily trial of watching Peninnah's sons and daughters laughing and playing, sitting in Alcana's lap and putting a smile on Alcana's face. And it's easy to picture Hannah's patience reaching the verge of breaking like an old rope. Hannah was in huge emotional pain. How many of you can imagine it? Say with me, Hannah had a major problem. Say with me, Alcana's household had big trouble. But Hannah wasn't the only one with a problem. For as we read the story on in the Bible, we find God had a problem also. Verse 4 tells us, that when Alcana and his family went to Shiloh to offer sacrifices to worship the Lord, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. We're told in chapter 2 that these two sons were corrupt. It says in the Bible, they did not know the Lord. These two sons of Eli ate the meat that was supposed to be sacrificed to the Lord. When you went to, up to Shiloh every year, you made a sacrifice to the Lord. It was a sacrificed animal. And instead of that being sacrificed to the Lord, Hophni and Phinehas would take this meat that had been sacrificed to God and would eat it themselves. They were trampling on holy ground, touching the sacred, abusing the divine. And if they would not give them the offering that was for the Lord, the Bible says Hophni and Phinehas would steal it from them, take it from them. But they didn't stop there. Hophni and Phinehas were busy. It says they were engaged in sexual sin 
with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle. This was God's problem. Watch this now. Here you are, Jehovah God. There is a temple that is supposed to be dedicated to you. And your glory is supposed to reside in that temple. And the Bible says the nation of Israel had totally backslidden. The temple at Shiloh, the place where God's glory was to dwell, had been desecrated. And the priesthood comprised of Eli and his two sons was totally corrupt. God had a problem. It was so bad in this day that we're talking about right now, so bad that it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Rarely did you ever even hear a word from God. We come here every week and we hear a word from God from His word. But the Bible says that in those days, the word of the Lord was so rare, it was a rare thing when anybody heard a word from the lips of God. And there was no widely spread vision. The people were groping in the dark. They were spiritually in the dark. They had no word from God. Now let me tell you something. The way you get vision is you get into the Word of God. The way you get vision, you get into the Word of God. You open up these pages, and as you read the Bible, it brings vision, it brings purpose, it brings meaning. We begin to understand what we're all about. We are not an evolutionary mishap. Our distant descendants did not crawl as some amoeba out of some ancient sea, and through a process of evolution, we became what we are today. We were created by Creator Jehovah Almighty God. And we were created with a purpose, with a design, with an intent in mind. We've got a reason to get up in the morning. We've got a reason to seek His face. We've got a reason to rejoice in the Lord. We've got a reason to feel like, hey, I got it going on. Because I know Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and He's really got it going on. And as long as I follow Him, I got something going on. I'm walking in the purpose of God. But in those days, it was a rare thing. Can you imagine once a year, once every two years, maybe once every five years, hearing a message that was a word from God? So God had a problem. God needed to totally clean house and start over. God had something He needed done. And God has a problem today. Can I say that? God has a problem today. Now, not like we have problems. He's not up there going, what am I going to do? But He's got a problem. There are some things that God needs done. Millions are lost and headed to a Christless eternity. God's got a problem. Because the Bible says He's not willing that any should perish, but all would come to the knowledge of the truth. God's got a problem. Evil forces are at work right now to totally strip America of every vestige of Jesus Christ, every nativity scene, every mention of the gospel. I received an article just this week, an article that was in a sec from a secular newspaper that was talking about the incredible attempts on the part of secular antichrist forces to totally remove Jesus from every public square, every mention. Christmas is coming. You're going to go into stores this year and you're going to hear happy holidays, you're going to hear God bless you, I guess, or whoever bless you, but here's what you're not going to hear, Merry Christmas, nothing with Christ, nothing with Christ, not anything with Christ, lest we offend somebody else. 
But can I tell you something? America, don't let anybody fool you. America was birthed in the fires of Christian Holy Ghost revival. Can I tell you the truth about our history just for a moment? We didn't just come to be. There were not all kinds of different religions here when America was birthed under the hand of the sovereignty of God. No, no, no. If you go all the way back to the early American colonies in America, you would find people like John Wesley and Charles Wesley preaching the Word of God preaching salvation from tree stumps in open fields. You would find George Whitfield, the great English evangelist who sailed to America over and over again, whose voice could be heard by 30,000 people with no aid of a microphone because there weren't any. He had a voice like a bell. It carried mile, a mile or more, all on its own. Vast crowds would come to hear him. The English church kicked him out for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he said, very well, if I can't preach within your walls, I'll go to the fields. He went to a field where down in a cave there were coal miners. And he shouted down into the cave, I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ today at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And when George Whitfield returned, he was stunned to see a sea of coal blackened faces with little rivulets running down the front of them as they wept as they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And revival was birthed. George Whitfield came to Boston. George Whitfield came to New York. George Whitfield came to Philadelphia. George Whitfield preached the gospel. All they would have to do is come and say, Whitfield is preaching today at four in the afternoon and immediately people would go on horseback to the farms and the highways and the byways and when he showed up there would be a sea of 20 and 30,000 faces and this man preached the gospel. You must be born again. You've got to come to Jesus. You need a heart transplant. He was eloquent. He was incredible. He was an amazing preacher and America was birthed in that kind of revival. John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and others like them, the early American colonies, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, northeastern cities, they were all birthed and baptized in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was revival in the very beginning days of America. Yet now people try to come along and say none of that really happened. Revisionists, historical revisionists are trying to take away from us the truth. And I'm telling you, church, God's got a problem in America. Here's the problem. Not just that His Son is being removed from every, every scene, from every place, from every store, from every public square, but His people aren't talking about Him. Let me tell you something, folks. Jesus will get back into the culture if Jesus gets back into the church. Come on, everybody. Many churches have forsaken the Word of God and caved into society's pressure to compromise the Word of God. You're hard-pressed going to some churches to even hear about Jesus, to hear the mention of Jesus, even of God. 
Many churches don't even open up the, 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 their services with readings from the Scripture. But the Bible says faith comes by hearing the Word of God. It is a total perplexity to me. And I say we don't need revival. We need reformation. We need for God to bring back the good old gospel. We need preachers standing in the pulpit every Sunday reading from the Word of God, expounding on the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, preaching the Word of God. We've got to get back to the gospel that shook America, that shook England, that shook the world, that shook Europe, all through history. We've got to get back to that gospel. So here's God. God had a problem. And who would have ever thought that God would search the world for a vessel to use and would settle on a heckled, vexed, barren, and miserable woman embroiled in an unbearable family crisis. But God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. He chooses that which is not to confound that which is. And Hannah's extremity became God's opportunity. Can I tell you today that your extremity, your problem, your pain is going to become God's opportunity? Now I'm going to say that again. Your pain, your heartbreak, your battles, your struggles, your extremities are going to become God's opportunities. One year, Hannah couldn't take it anymore. She had all she could stand. She couldn't stand no more. During the feast and the family gathering, the heckling became unbearable, the circumstances undoable, and the misery unendurable. I can't take it anymore. How many of you got that way this week? Can't take it anymore. I can't do this anymore. I say that at least once a week in rush hour traffic. Have you ever had this fantasy that a helicopter propeller goes out of the middle of your car, above your car, and starts whirring and lifts you out of it? and you go land where you want? How many of you have that fantasy? It's called the flight response. <laughs> David didn't have helicopters, so he just said, oh, but I had wings like a dove. I'll take helicopter propeller any day. Just get me out of rush hour. But she reached the place she couldn't take it anymore. And here's where Hannah got her victory. The Bible says in verse 9, so Hannah rose. Hannah got up. Hannah rose. She didn't rise to walk away and disappear because when I first read that verse I started watching now, now where is she going to get up and go? Because I know what different people would do in different circumstances or circumstances like this. I know what some people would do. They would rise and walk away and disappear. I've had all this fun I can stand. It's time for a new day. I sense God leading me to another place. She didn't rise to bop Peninnah in the head, which I think God would have anointed her to do. She didn't rise to tell Elkanah, who never really did understand her pain, to do something about Peninnah, wife number two. Can't you tell her to leave me alone? Can't you tell her to shut up? She didn't do that. She did not do that. She rose to find a place of prayer. She rose to find a place of prayer. 
She rose to take her grief to the only one who could do something about it. She rose to carry her case to the one who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. She rose to take it to God. Now I'm going to tell you something, folks. Here's the key. It is not what happens to you. It is not what happens to you. Stuff happens in this life. Unfairnesses happen in this life. Inequities happen in this life. Betrayals happen in this life. Wrong things happen to right people in this life. Bad things happen to good people in this life because we live in a devil-infested, sin-infected world. It's not what happens to you. It is how you respond to what happens to you. You can't control what other people do. You can only control what you do. And you have, catch this now, total control over your responses. Total. You have total control. No, I don't, Pastor Jeff. My dad had a temper. My granddaddy had a temper. I've got this terrible, furious temper. It's their fault. No. When you lose your temper, it's your fault. And you'll never get set free until you own it. Just own it. Just go ahead and own it. Everybody around you knows it anyway. You're not informing anybody around you that you've got a temper. They all know. That's why the animals run and duck behind the furniture when you come home. It is where you take your pain. It is where you take your pain. The same sun that melts butter hardens clay. Some people respond by hardening their heart to God, to adversities and troubles, and that's why I'm preaching this the next few weeks, because God never even wastes a pain. The grace of God is at work in your life if you'll respond to the grace of God. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's the deal that God has cut with us, that when adversity happens... There are two things in your life. There is the enemy wanting you to respond badly, wanting you to get angry at God, angry at people, angry at the church, angry at everything, and walk away and become a bitter old man or woman. That's the devil, and he'll do it if you'll let him do it. He'll work you, he'll work you, and he'll work you until that's the way you are. I like what Abe Lincoln said. Every man and every woman is responsible for their face after 40. What does that mean? Well, if you look like this, after 40, that's because of the way, that's the way you responded to things. Oh, here he comes. But watch this. If you respond to the grace of God being extended to you in your trials after 40, Glory to God. Well, you ought to see all of you. <laughs> You've been around those people. You see them coming and you hide. Hey, how's it going? Oh, don't talk to me about how it's going. It's, it's, it's like a Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. Hey, it's Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. And there's people in the church this way. They make a service, let me tell you. You better preach good. You better preach me out of this hell I'm in. <laughs> and, 
And, and so here's the deal. You've got the devil wanting to carry you down that bitterness, that misery, all of that. And you've got God. And what he, here's what he's doing. He's extending grace. That's why the Bible says, let no man fail of the grace of God that no root of bitterness would be planted in you and spring up defiling many. Notice what he says. The grace of God is being extended toward you, and if you respond to it, you won't have a root of bitterness. What's the grace of God? It is the power to do the will of God. That's the grace of God. It's the power to do the will of God. You don't have it in you to forgive an enemy, much less pray for an enemy, unless it's, Lord, kill them. Come on. The grace of God comes to enable you to do what you couldn't do on your own. The grace of God is being extended every time you're offended, every time you're hurt, every time you're in pain. The grace of God is there. And if you respond to the grace of God by keeping your heart like butter, not hardened clay, and you let the grace of God change you and rearrange you and mature you and put character into you, the character of Christ, you'll come through the trial on the other side. And that's what Hannah did. Hannah said, if I don't touch God, this is going to destroy me. You know what that is? That's a do-or-die problem. You see the options. If I don't touch God, if I don't get a breakthrough, if He doesn't answer me, if I don't get a word from God, this is going to take me out. How many of you know what that's like? It's going to take me out. It's going to be the ruin of me. It's going to wipe me out. I won't be able to handle it. So Hannah went and went before God. Now, hang on, everybody. Let me show you something. Let me show you something as we approach the end. In the extremity of her pain, God brought opportunity for gain. When you read the story, you see that God is the one who closed her womb. That's what it says twice. That's a misprint, Pastor Jeff. No, it's not. That's the Word of God. God is the one who closed her womb. Because if we had allowed Hannah to, live, to be like everybody else, a woman, just like everybody else, like all the women, just let her have her children, raise them, grow old and die. Are you ready? She'd have been like everybody else. God didn't want her like everybody else. So God closed the womb. We've got to understand sometimes, folks, that when we're experiencing pain in the presence of God, walking with God, sometimes God's got a higher purpose. We can not see. We've got to walk through it. She didn't see that God saw. God had a plan because God had a problem. I said God had a plan because God had a problem. And he didn't want him to be like everybody else, and he didn't want you to be like everybody else. He needed a new prophet to speak to the nation. He needed a man after his heart to represent him to the people. The whole priesthood was corrupt. God was looking for new people. He needed someone totally consecrated to him living in the temple day and night. So he found a woman in pain and said, I'm going to take care of your problem and mine at the same time. 
Thank <laughs> you. 